the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. On today's episode, we have Ron, Pat, and Tammy Foreman with us to talk about one of the most fascinating suspects in the D.B. Cooper case, Barbara Dayton. The Foremans were close personal friends of Barb Dayton for years and often went flying together. Pat and Ron are the authors of The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes, a great book that covers Bobby Dayton's transition to Barbara Dayton, as well as how she pulled off the heist. The Foremans are great people and couldn't have been any friendlier. I really enjoyed talking to them and I hope you'll enjoy my interview with Ron, Pat, and Tammy Foreman. Ron and Pat, let's uh, talk about Barb Dayton. So when did you guys meet her? Okay, I'll start out. We met her, I think it was in May of uh, 1977. I was uh, working on my commercial pilot's license and I was earning some extra flying time. And I was given what they call uh, two cent a pound rides. And the kid would get on the scale and whatever they weighed, if they weighed 50 pounds, you know, it would cost, you know, a dollar for a ride. So that's what I was doing for, I flew for I think an hour and a half. And then I was on break and there was this lady pilot that had a, had a Cessna and I'd seen her for quite a few months there. And, and my wife Pat was with me, you know, and I said, let's go talk to that lady. She had been curious about her because I, you know, I, I went, we were on break, right? So we walked up to this, this lady, her name introduced ourselves and her name was Barb. So, I'm sorry, what year was this? 1977, I think it was May, something like that, the summer, right? Yeah, in the summer, yeah. So we were, I was just visiting with her, and, and she said, uh, I told her I was, you know, interested in airplanes and stuff, and I said, I like your plane, you know, and she, we talked about it a little bit, and she said, if you, the one in front of me is for sale, if you, if you want to buy one, that one's for sale. So I went over, and I walked around, I looked it over a little bit, you know, and I said, it's, it's pretty nice. I said, but uh, boy, I just... We just ordered a brand new 77 truck, but I sure like that airplane, you know. So anyways, after a little bit, you know, I think, did she give me a ride then or the next day? I can't remember. The next day. The next day I took a ride. She said, well, why don't you come on down and I'll give you a ride in my airplane and see what you think about it, you know. So I flew her airplane, you know, and she let me, uh, she actually let me land it too because, you know, it surprised me. I, and I had no problem landing her because I had some uh, tail dragger time flying. It's a tail dragger airplane. It's an airplane with a tail wheel instead of a nose, a nose gear, which is a tricycle. So then I got a hold of the uh, the guy that was selling the airplane, contacted him, and we agreed on a price for it. And Barb said she knew a mechanic that could help me get the inspection done, stuff like that. So that was uh, that was the beginning of our, our relationship with uh, our friend Barb Dayton. Do you have anything to say, Pat? <laughs> yeah. Well, she was just really helpful. She she was actually kind of aloof and didn't talk to people that much at the airport at that time. She was always by herself. But when we showed an interest in the airplane, then she decided that uh, 
we were probably okay. And uh, our airplane was really a broken down piece of junk actually at the time, but it, it apparently some someplace along the line, somebody had taken care of it, but the tires were flat and the grass was all grown up above the, the wheels and- Skin was dull. It was just, yes, it was, uh, part of it was brown and uh, the, one of the wings was yellow and pink striped and uh, it was it was quite a mess. And so she offered to help us to, make it look presentable and also she knew a lot about the mechanics of the airplane and she uh, was it was very helpful in us getting it together and we thought well with her help and everything too i think we can we can do this and um, so we bought the airplane (laughs) and it took about about two weeks in about two weeks we got the airplane all signed off ready to fly so went up for a test flight and she went me i can't remember or not maybe not huh maybe not don't remember. I mean, it was just me. Huh? Anyways, <laughs> the airplane, I took off, and it wasn't climbing at all. It just I went down the runway, and it took a bit to lift off because it hadn't flown in a year or more, and it was just sluggish. Finally, it finally lifted off, and I was getting nervous. I time I come around the pattern on downwind, I wasn't at the altitude. Pattern altitude at the time was 1,300 feet, and I was probably about eight or 900 feet. I couldn't even, because it was, you know, it hadn't been flown in a while. I came around, and I landed it, and did a really nice job of landing. They call it three-point landing, right? And landed it, and so... I told Barbara, I said, I hope it gets better. It's, it's, right now, it's kind of a little scary flying that thing. She said, well, it's just because it hasn't flown in, you know, way over a year. It'll take a little bit to get it going again, you know. Got to knock the dust off. Knock of the it. dust right. off of it, right. <laughs> so, it, so it did, right? Yeah. So then, um, and then we would, uh, we would go fly, we would, on the weekends, usually we would, we would go flying to different places, you know, to a different uh, city or different restaurants in the area, you know, and have lunch and then fly back something like that right right and a lot of times I would fly with Barb and and uh, one of the kids would go with with uh, Ron and then uh, there was always other 140 pilots and they would take our other kid and we would take off yeah. and go to little mountain strips and and right. we but, just but she was still didn't she was kind of aloof and uh, we kept inviting her to her house and this took a while to, it took about well, Two, three, four months before she would actually, right? Right. So I think it was, yeah, toward the winter. Yeah, it was toward the Thanksgiving, November. And this we put in the book. And so we, um, it was miserable weather, rainy. And I went down the airport because I always like to fly on holidays, Thanksgiving Day, Christmas, New Year's. It's always an excuse to fly. It's a holiday. <laughs> so I went down there and there was Barb sitting there by her airplane. And she couldn't fly because the weather was bad, you know, and just sitting there in her, her 62 Dodge. So I... Uh, I said, Bob, why don't you come, it's Thanksgiving, why don't you come to our house? And because she, you know, she says, oh, no, I can't do that. That's for relatives and, you know, friends and stuff like that, right? Right. So I said, no, really, it's fine. She said, no, I, I can't do it, you know. So then I went home, and I had Pat prepare a meal for her, you know, on a paper plate, I think, right? Right. Right? So, yep, he brought a meal out to so her. And... meal on wheels. <laughs> Probably the original meal on wheels, maybe, huh? <laughs> So she was excited about it. She ate it, and that was fine. She still didn't want to come to her house. So along comes, uh, pretty soon it's December, right? Christmas, right? Right. I drive to the airport Christmas, and of course the weather's bad as usual. It's usually pretty bad in Washington. You're from what, Idaho or something? Yeah, I live in Idaho right now, but I grew up in Windlock. Okay, um, so you know what the weather Woodland is. You know what the uh, Seattle-Tacoma weather is like. So uh, she's sitting there again, and I see Barb, it's Christmas. Uh, why don't you come to our house for dinner? No, I can't do that. You know, I just don't do that. I'm not, you know. 
So I went home and prepared another meal and brought it to her, <laughs> and she enjoyed it. Still, you know. And so I think it was, uh, I think the next weekend or something like that, finally. Whatever, right? Right. I think it was, yeah, probably a week or two later, yeah. and we kept inviting her. We kept her inviting her, so Sunday. she finally, she decided after two meals on wheels, she would actually come to our house. So she did. And then mm-hmm. after that, every Sunday after our flying, she would come to our house, and we would talk about the day's activities and eat dinner with us usually, right? Right. So that's kind of how we got to be, you know. We got to be good really friends, good right? friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but she was a... Uh, because when we met her, she was aloof, and she was, before I had, you know, I'd, I'd talked to her, I'd seen her at the airport, she was always a loner, always by herself, which is pretty unusual, and it's unusual to see a woman pilot there, let alone someone that's always by herself, too, you know. So that always got my attention. Why did she have no, she had no friends. But once she got hanging out with uh, me and Pat, and we introduced her to some of the other Cessna 140 pilots, and we had kind of a big group, and she, you know, she ended up being, you know, a lot more friendly, but still a little bit aloof, but yet she would, we would go places, right? Right. And she loved to fly on these, these uh, mountain strips and dangerous places, I would say. I never cared for much. She just didn't like regular, <laughs> regular normal airports. She wanted to always go up in the mountains or something, some really small sh- strip, which is, our planes aren't, uh, they don't have a big engine. They only have 85 horses, so they're not the best places to fly a, a plane like ours into some of these mountain strips to get out of them, especially if it's hot. But she, that's where she liked to go, someplace like that, right? Right. And, uh, you know, Ron was in the Air Force Reserves at that time, and so he was gone one weekend a month. And our crummy-looking old airplane, I, you know, it just looked really horrible. And Barb decided that I should give it a new paint job. So Barb decided that you should. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Because I was busy working on the weekends. So, so anyway, so, you know, she was right there beside me and, you know, she, but she wouldn't do it. She wanted me to do it because she said that you're never going to get the feeling of doing something like this and feeling proud of it after you do it. If, if I do it for you, she said, you need to do it. So I just kept rubbing and rubbing on that old, old, uh, aluminum until it's finally started to shine a little bit and you stripped some of the paint that and was on I it and i stripped the paint you know it had the brown cowling and uh i just uh, uh worked and worked and worked on that thing and then i uh found a picture of an airplane that i wanted to copy the design off of so i went out and you know i put the masking tape around it so that i could get it all ready to paint and painted it with spray cans and all the time you know she was she was there giving me encouragement but um she just had such a crazy sense of humor she just though that half of the time when I was out there I would be lying on the ground laughing so hard I couldn't get up I mean it was she she was just an amazing person to know and uh we became such close friends I'll just uh Always miss her. <laughs> yeah, it was, but there was something about her. I didn't know what it was, but, you know, a lot of times I, I would watch her doing stuff. Or One time, I think it's in the book, too, we, she was doing a brake job on her 62. So I pulled up, let me help you with that, Barb. I'm an automotive mechanic slash aircraft mechanic. So I took over, and I was putting a spring on the, the brake drums and having a little trouble getting it hooked on. And I looked over my shoulder, and I saw that she had that look like she knew more about the job than I did, which we found out after she died. We got all the diaries and the records, and she worked. 
She worked at uh, you know three or four different Ford dealerships as an auto mechanic. Which, but you know, I knew at the time there was something. She was the way she was watching me do that. Like she knew more about the job than I did. And there were a lot of different things like that job she would be doing. You know, she'd be. One time I caught her. She was pulling her prop off, and I'm looking at it, and she only had like a small, I think, eight-inch crescent wrench, and you know, I think it's half-inch uh, nuts holding the prop on. And I was watching her. She just took it off and lifted it, and it's about, I think, 75 pounds, 60, 75 pounds. She lifted off that prop like it was, you know, light, nothing, you know. So, they were, you know, I figured, well, she's just a strong lady, I guess, you know. That nothing occurred to me, yeah. And uh, what else? There was different things, right? Well, were there any other single women at hanging no. out with their own planes? Then? No, she was it. She was the only. Uh, there yeah, was that another. Was there was unusual a, at that. Very time. unusual, and there was another lady at a different airport. But she was. She had lots of friends, and her husband was a pilot. You know, and stuff like that. But she was the only one. But uh, anyway, so we would every weekend we would usually fly boats Saturday and Sundays, and we always went to different airports and had just every weekend. She would circle my house in the morning, and we called it the the. Uh, Call of the Wild, she would circle right over my house, and I said, "Oh, that's boring. I must. She must have. That was her sign. Get to the airport. We got to go flying." Yeah, and these planes were, you know, they were pretty economical to fly. They burnt five gallons an hour, her one forty in mine. So at the time, it was about four dollars an hour to fly it, which is pretty good price of a mocha now. But you know, yeah. so fuel fuel was fifty six cents a gallon back then. So we flew a lot, literally every weekend. And then there are, Do you remember what you guys paid for your plane? Yes, I paid four thousand five hundred dollars. She paid four thousand for hers. Yeah, exactly mm -hmm. with it. Yep. And at the time, we had a partner, a friend of ours. We were going to go half and half, but he was kind of a big guy. His name was Carl. So after one flight, and he decided he didn't he didn't want to he didn't want to go half and half. So I ended up buying the whole you know paying for the whole airplane. And I paid for it out of my, I was in the Air Force Reserve, so I didn't take my regular paycheck. It was my reserve money. That's how I paid for it, you know, to pay for the airplane. So, because I had just bought a truck and I was making payments on that too. So, yeah. And what was your day job during the time? I was an aircraft mechanic at uh, McCord Air Force Base. Okay. So, which comes in really handy for working on an airplane. I'm a mechanic and they have access to bolts, nuts, screws, safety wire, and stuff I need. But maybe airplane, we right? shouldn't talk about that. Oh, maybe we shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> well, we pay taxes, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But in my hangar, sometimes I walk in and, and it'll come to attention, my hangar, with all my parts and stuff like that. So, But it was, you know, it was a cheap way to fly back then. We, you know, we didn't, I was the only one working at the time, right? Yeah, you weren't working. Right, yet. right. I was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, stuff like that. So, and then there was a, the other trip we talked about, uh, in the book, that uh, the book is called D.B. Cooper: The Legend of D The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes. Anyways, uh, we were down in uh, we were going to Los Angeles, and we landed at Ashland. The weather was really bad; we couldn't get over the top of the mountains there at Ashland. So we spent uh, actually two days there. But um, the one night I remember, we were sitting there eating, and this was really I remember we had mashed potatoes and, uh, uh, and liver and gravy some vegetables but I was sitting there watching her eat and you know most women are quite dainty you know they just eat small bites and she was just like shoving that food in like a like a I don't know what's the word hun uh, I don't know what you're looking you know, for uh, <laughs> like you know she was just eating it like, like a, you know guys eat more with gumption and I'm watching her and I knew there was something different but I couldn't figure it out I I kept watching her and I, I but I didn't dominate she used to be a man 
that, that, that part never dawned on me. It's just she had weird mannerisms, I thought, you know. So had either of you met a transsexual at this point? Never. No. Never. Barely had even heard Never, of them ever. at that time. No. no. Right. So, so. Hmm. But anyway, we really got a shock. Uh, uh, one of the Sundays when she came over, she just announced that she had something to tell us. And once she told us about it, that we would never want to talk to her again. And uh, we would, uh, she'd probably have to take her airplane and move to another field. We just wouldn't even want to see her. And we couldn't figure out what it could possibly be that she was going to, uh, wanted to tell us. So we began, we started a guessing game, right? I right. Said, what could you do? Would you murder somebody? Were you like a prostitute? What was it, right? And right. she said at one time, she said, I had all the money in the world. I, I, right? She said so much. She had a she, great job and she had plenty of money, right? Right. Yeah. She said she had plenty of money and, you know, she was, uh, but she was never happy. And, um, so anyway, uh, she just kept going on and on, giving us uh, hints, and you know we just kept making crazy guess guesses, or Ron did, I should say. And I just kind of sat there, what in the world could this possibly be? I mean, she's a good friend. I'm not gonna forget. Why would her we want to hate her guts? She said, "You'll hate my guts after I tell you." Yeah, <laughs> and we said, "Well, was it illegal? No, it wasn't really illegal, but you know, so that cut things down." Yeah. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, I was sitting there and I started having this this uh, strange thought. I thought, you know what? I wonder if she used to be a man. And I don't know why I got that thought. It's as if Barb sent it, a, a tele telegraphic. It, How do you supposed to word? It was the strangest feeling. Telepathic. Yes. She has no idea. That thought just came into her head. Cause and then all of a sudden, Barb started, stopped talking and she looked at me and she says, well, your wife knows now. <laughs> I remember that. I says, how does she know that you know? So we went in the bedroom and said, let's go in here a minute. <laughs> he said, he took me out of the room to, to, for me to tell him. And I said, well, I don't think I'm right. I think she used to be a man. <laughs> and he I says, no. <laughs> There's no way. I've spent a year with flying with her. She's not a, you know, she, she's a woman. She's never been. A, what are you talking about? How could she be that? I didn't even know. I had no idea you could even do that back then. One so of the first things out of his mouth was, my God, I'm glad I never tried anything. Yeah, we used to take a lot of trips together. I, I'd be, I to this day would be seen a psychiatrist if I had, was to have sex with her or something, right? We thought about that, right? Can you imagine? I mean, just the thought of that back then, you know. But yeah, it was just uh, we were. But she, I think she sent you a message because you, we never even knew that could be done, right? No, we didn't I, know anything about it, right? I had read about one person that had had that operation, at, you know, not too too many months before that, so. I kind of, I guess in the back of my mind, knew it, but I, I still to this day don't know why that popped into my head by the yeah. the hints that were being given. But So she left and that that evening, and we said, we better be sure and see her at the airport, you know, the next Saturday morning, you know, let her know that, you know, that's, you know, we're, we're still fine with it. You know, we're friends, right? Right. Right. Which we did. We made sure we went to the airport that Saturday morning, and she was there, of course, and, you know, we said, well, let's go flying. Like nothing, like nothing happened, right? Right. You know? Yeah, it was. Of course, really I didn't sleep the whole weekend, right? Right. We well, we didn't sleep the whole week. It was yeah. really funny. I mean, it, 
I mean, we really just didn't know how we felt about something like that. I mean, that was, that was. Uh, well, she was thinking, you know, she goes in the same bathroom at the airport together and she, all of a sudden I realized this guy, this <laughs> well, person used to be a man and we're in the same toilet, you know, I just thought, the thought of it back, this is back in the seventies, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, now we're a little more educated and yeah. realize that, you know, this is, you know. And now she was, happens. now Barbara would be normal. She would be like a hero. Anyway, so we continued uh, with our friendship. She realized that, you know, it didn't, you know, didn't change anything, right? After we, after about a week of not sleeping, we just figured, okay, she's used to be a man. And, and then she had a lot of more stories. And then that explained a lot of the different things she was doing and stuff. She knew her knowledge about mechanics and everything we uh, we understood more then because then she could tell us a lot more of her stories which she still right right yeah then, she did right yeah then every weekend she would uh give you know come and give us more stories of things from her past, past. and one day she was showing us her how she uh knew uh karate and she was you know she was leaping all over the living room doing all kinds of, of yeah. weird stunts she did one-handed push-ups picking up a matchstick out of between their fingers and she and was, she was in her 50s at this point yes yes yeah, so we were like 30 i think yeah right she was about she was, 55 yeah. i believe yeah but, uh, yeah so she had st every weekend it was great to hear her stories I and mean, these things were unbelievable stories i mean you know she you know she had rode with hell's angels for us she had a, a motorcycle shop with a buddy and she met some of the guys in the Hell's Angels in the gang, and so she joined the Hell's Angels, and she rode with them for a while. And she said they, um, she rode into the town of Hollister, California, and she said they tore up the town. They were beating people up, and some of the guys ended up, you know, raping some of the women. And she did not. She she loved the fighting and all that, but she didn't want no part of that. So that's when she decided to to get out of Hell's Angels because she didn't, you know, she didn't think that was right at all, you know. But she liked to just she liked to just tear up the town and the fight and all that was fine, but you know, as far as you know, attacking the women or assaulting or something like that, she didn't. So she ended up getting getting out of Hell, Hell's Angels gang stuff like that and but mm -hmm. she she like I said she told us she had I think 150 different jobs and and I, you know, we right. get to the diaries later about how we found she, out that. She yeah. was really handy. She would oh, yeah. come over, you know, my, my dishwasher quit working, so she took it apart and fixed it. She came over one time, and there was a tree in the field next door that was ready to, our, in our driveway, I guess I should say, that was we were kind of afraid to take down, so she, she just happened to know how to, how to, how to cut a, how to cut cut that a tree. Down. And so she... Uh, she so showed here, us exactly where to cut it. I did the cutting, and we put a strap yeah. on it, and it fell exactly. Because she used to be a logger, I guess, too. She right. was a logger and a topper, and worked with dynamite all the time. You did the dynamiting. So here's this 55-year-old yeah. lady chopping down a tree, and I was kind of looking. I hope the neighbors aren't watching this. Yeah. This looks and a she, little yeah. weird. <laughs> and she uh, did the uh, the appliance. She worked, at a, she worked in an appliance store before, so she knew about all the appliance stuff. So she just got in her tar thing and found the switch that was bad. She used to be a, she was an electrician, too, you know. Stuff like that, right? Right. And her her last job before she had the sex change was a she was an electrical foreman at Lockheed Shipyard in Seattle. That was her job. But she had the problem with that job. She said she was doing the hiring of all the men and stuff like that. And she said she some of the guys were good looking, and she said she just she'd kind of like fall in love with them. So she said this isn't going to work out. Me being you know doing the hiring and that. So that was that was right before she ended up with the the sex job. Right. Sex change, right? Right. So. Yeah. so anyway, then it uh, wasn't uh, too long after that that um, 
you know, every time the pilots would go flying and they'd go to lunch or something, the big topic of conversation was always D.B. Cooper, if anything had originally been in the news. And uh, uh, Ron, you can tell about that, that you were yeah. at lunch. We just and, read an article about D.B. Cooper. I don't know if it was around the anniversary time or what, but we were talking about it, and she would always stick up for D.B. Cooper, which was strange. She would say, oh, the FBI, they don't know what they're talking about. They're saying he's just a common criminal. And she would actually get angry if I said anything about D.B. Cooper. You know, and I thought, well, that's kind of strange. And so we were just discussing it. Uh, there was another couple. We were at a place called Shelton. We flew down there for lunch. And we were just sitting there, and all of a sudden I decided to make a funny. I said, you know what? Mark was his name. I said, you know what? I think Barb's D.B. Cooper. And Jesus Christ, all of a sudden she gave me the dirtiest look, just stared at me, didn't say a word then, just stared at me and tried to change the subject, right? So then we were walking across the highway for Shelton to get to our planes, and on the way back she just said, don't ever bring that up in front of anybody. I says, well, what's the matter, Barb? I'm just, just shitting you, you know, I'm not, you know, just kidding you, Barb. She says, don't, just don't mention that. And I thought, well, that's really strange. So I think it was a few weeks after that she came to our house, and I couldn't keep quiet like I am now, right? So I had the picture of uh, the D.B. Cooper, the sketch that the, that the flight attendant had sketched, you know, from the FBI. So she came over, and we think I read a couple were there too, right? Right. We yeah. had Mark and Cherry. So I, I brought it up again. I said, so I forget how I brought it up about Right. And once again, she started just ranting and raving yeah. about how the newspaper article was all wrong that uh, they didn't know what they were talking about, it, you know. And then she started giving all these details of, of, about the, the jump and, and uh, you know, that the jump wasn't even where they thought it was. And, you know, she was going on and on. And she was just getting really worked up. And then uh, finally, you know, we were all just sitting there with our mouths open. I mean, you know, it was kind of like, how do you get into a conversation like that? This is weird. And so then she noticed that we were all just sitting there, and she said, well, she says, Ron guested a, a couple of weeks ago there in Shelton. I am D.B. Cooper. Uh, she said, actually, she said, I am Dan Cooper. And uh, anyway, we didn't know who Dan Cooper was at that point, but, uh, you know, it came out later that the D.B. was, was a mistake. It was and that Dan. Dan she was, said that. It was Dan. It wasn't D.B. Right. And so we said, okay. I have a picture of D.B. Cooper. Let me comb your back, right? So I combed her hair to the side, and I put on sunglasses I had, and we took a picture with the old Instamatic camera. You, know, you have to wait for them to develop. We're sitting, we're all at the kitchen table, right? We're watching, and pretty soon it developed, and it, 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 it was, it was a match. I mean, no, there was no doubt. I mean, it was that, and she was thinner then. Her face, now, yeah, she had gained. We known her a while, quite a few years, but I said, my God, what do we? I think she really is Stevie Cooper. So, yeah, and she didn't, I think, uh, you know, and, and our friend Sherry, she was panicking. She, thought, she just was young. We're, gonna, we're all going to jail now. We look. What do we do with it? We, we know a felon, you know, and she was panicking. So I think they went home right after that, and I think Barb left, right? Right. Right, she left after that, right? Well, our kids at that point in time were 12 and 10, and I looked up, and they were, uh, peeking around the corner here, uh, uh, watching what was going on. And uh, so anyway, Sherry uh, was, she was about 17 at the time, and it's, it just freaked her out so bad that she just grabbed the picture, and she uh, 
ran into the living room with it, and the kids followed her. And and uh, before we could do anything about it, she tore it into little pieces. She was just screaming, "We're all going to go to jail! We're all going to go to jail!" <laughs> So, did you have to tell your kids not to talk about this at school or anything? Yes, we, we did. And, of course, at that age, you're kind of thinking, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, we, we, can't, we said we can't tell anybody that this – we can't tell anybody this story. Yeah. You know, right? Right. So, anyway, but uh, – So, after – and then the following the next two – probably three or four different weekends, she would come over and she would give us a little bit of, of the story – the entire what she did, the jump, how it was, what, what altitude she jumped at, she free fell from you know, to nine thousand feet, popped a shoot at a thousand, and then she was giving us details of, of of where you know the jump site where it was located, and she made it kind of like a like a game, right? She wouldn't tell us exactly where it is. She'd she'd say it's at a forty five degree angle from uh, from Aurora Airport, right? And something like that, you know, and it was kind of a game she was playing too, right, to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. And she talked about the dynamite, and she said it was, she called it, I think the flight attendant said it was eight sticks, uh, you know, and she called it a two-pound charge, and I think we looked it up, and that, that would be eight sticks when they call it two, would be a two-pound dynamite charge, you know, and stuff like that. Yes. And go oh, ahead. And she had in the past all, all already told us that she worked with dynamite. Dynamite is a so. logger and also on their ranch down in... Uh, Right. So she knew all about it. Yeah. And she said that, uh, she, that she used a, a staple remover as a switch. Yeah. She, she was saying, guess what I used for a switch? And she was an electrician, too. She said, I used a staple remover. And I thought, about, yeah, I guess you could. It's always open. You have to close it to make contact, you know, something like that, which made sense because she had no money then, right? And, right. She, she, and she said she dyed her hair with, uh, with black shoe polish, which would make it very shiny. But, you know, right? Yeah. And then we we found out later that one of the one of the people who was a witness at the time of the hijacking sitting kind of almost um, near her, right? Right, made the comment that uh, the hair was kind of matted and and um, wavy, um, shiny, and shiny, black, looking. shiny. Yeah, like a patent leather shoes, which like is unusual. Patent leather shoes was she, the exact words. Yes, because so. she had short <laughs> hair, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was. Uh, so we would, if she told us this stuff, we would just listen. We wouldn't, we didn't want to take notes in front of her. So as soon as she leave, we'd have to try to re remember this, what she said. And, and we wrote it down is what we did, right? Stuff right. like that, right? But you guys believed her right away. I right did. Away. Uh, well, I was a little she's a, uh, she's a computer uh, <laughs> IT and analyst and software designer and all that. So she's, she's harder to prove, right? Right. I was a little more skeptical. I thought. This can't be. All these, you know, she's had too many. These stories were just crazy stories, right? Right. I mean, a guerrilla fighter in the Philippines during World War II. She, she got lost on a pig hunt, and she joined the the Moro tribe that were fighting the Japanese. It was right in 1945 at the end of the war. I mean, right. come on, you're a guerrilla fighter? I mean, she's just like, when we met her, she was like an older lady to us, right? Right. How could you have been a guerrilla fighter, right? So some of them, I thought they were so crazy. I thought, you know, no. That that can't be true. Can't be true, right? You know? Yeah, and um, I actually didn't become convinced really until I started doing the research for the book, and we were able to prove that. Sure enough, she was in the Philippines during that time. She was a wall, right? And um, you know, everything just started uh, little by little, just falling into place. It was probably a month or two after she said, told us she admitted she was D.B. Cooper. She came one day and she said, you know, 
That whole D.B. Cooper story, I made it up completely. Don't believe any of it, you know. And by this time, I was 100% sure she was D.B. Cooper, and then she came up with that. And and we didn't know about the statute of limitations or any of that stuff. We didn't get, we didn't, she never explained what, why she changed her mind, right? Right. So after that, she really, you couldn't get her to talk about it. She, she, you couldn't be the subject. She just didn't want to talk about it whatsoever, right? Right. But then every once in a while, in the years after that, she'd give us another little hint. hint something yeah. that happened there that she just couldn't seem to help herself. So right. it was kind of strange. But um, And one of the hints was when she said about giving you, she had something she was going to give you. Right. Well, yeah, she always said that there was something that she would give me because, uh, and I'd never want for anything the rest of my life because I was always doing things for other people. And, and, she, and she says, when I give you this, you'll want for nothing the rest of your life. And so we figured, God, it has to be proof of the shoe or some of the money or something right. proof that she actually was D.B. Cooper, right? Right. But then she, we never, she never did, and she got kind of paranoid as she got older, right? Right. And so we saw less and less of her. Right. Oh, and she had she had some problems with her airplane, and and she lost her medical a little before that, right? She was she flew for another two wow. years with no medical, right? Yes, after oh, I. Oh yeah. Yes. Tell that story. <laughs> yeah, I would love to talk about this. <laughs> that, that story, yeah. Right. Yes. Well, I was. We were on one of our um, weekend flights, and um, I was flying with Barb again, and. Uh, I think one of our one of my kids was with Ron, and uh, anyway, she she had been teaching me a little bit about flying because she thought that anybody who flies around in airplanes should really learn how to fly a little bit. And uh, so I knew how to fly, but I didn't know how to land an airplane. So we were out going over the bay and had headed for Shelton, I believe, is where we were going, and. Um, all of a sudden, I just noticed that the airplane started uh, just diving to the side. And uh, so I turned over and looked at her, and her head was thrown back, and she had passed out. She wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, um, I don't know, <laughs> wasn't conscious. So anyway, I grabbed the wheel, and um, I was working the pedals and got it all straightened out and started following our airplane that I could see off in the in the distance and I couldn't reach the radio from where I sat the the 140 that we were flying in has the the steering wheel and pedals all on on both sides so I could fly from there but I couldn't reach the radio so I couldn't even call for help so I was uh, just following the airplane along, our airplane, and um, I kept every kept yelling for Barb, hoping that she would wake up. Finally, you know, she started kind of moaning and coming to, and I said, "Barb, you've got to land this thing." And she says, "Well, if you can follow it, get it down into the pattern, I'll take it and I'll put it on the ground." So. I did, and I followed our, our airplane still and went around the pattern the way I was supposed to, except that I was going way too fast. I don't know, when you get close to the ground, you know, you start thinking about things. So you can stall these airplanes out pretty quickly if you're going slow. I don't want to, I couldn't, couldn't make myself slow the airplane down. So anyway, she finally took hold of the airplane. And on final. On final. And... Uh, 
we were going fast enough that we almost went off the edge of the runway and end of the runway bounced all, all over the place and so I was sitting there trying to catch my breath and she was sitting there trying to recover and uh, finally Ron came running up and opened the door to the airplane and said what are you two just sitting here for and what why did you land so horrible Barb and What's going on here? And then he looked at her and he says, oh, you look horrible. Look at that barb. She was and, white? Uh, yes. Pink li- blue lips? Blue lips, yes. And then uh, Barb turned and looked at me and she says, well, I think your wife looks worse than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. And we were in the middle of the sound, Puget Sound, when, when that happened too. So. Yeah. And the 140s are really a hard plane to land. I mean, it's a tricky, it's, it's a tail dragger and it, they bounce a lot, and they're not, they're very hard to control, and if you haven't really flown or not a pilot, it would be impossible for you to probably land it without crashing it, right? Right. Yeah. So, so I saw her land, and I said, why the heck she's coming in like twice the speed? She was just flying down the runway, and man, she's not going to, she's going to go off the end of the runway, because you, when you came around, you didn't, you have to slow it down on downwind and all that, you know. Oh, well, I know, but. So, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> right? So anyways. Uh, and she just said calm as day, like, oh, I just had a heart attack. She she actually didn't really know at that point in time. She just uh, she thought she might have, and then she went to the doctor. Yeah, and, a week um, later she get a e- e- compared her EKG yeah. to one before, and you could see yeah. that she had some damage. Yeah, so and, she had had a heart attack. And after that, she couldn't get her medical because she lost it. She lost her medical, but yeah, yeah, yeah but she was as calm as could be, and and I was a mess naturally. Yeah, didn't you? shortly after that fly back home with yeah her? she did yes too. i did yeah, of all the crazy not thinking things. too straight at the time i honestly because i couldn't think. put her in my airplane i had who was in my plane someone I, else I, I don't remember if it was ronnie or somebody else was in my plane so i didn't have room for her. we didn't want to leave her at port orchard right i was willing to stay at port orchard and wait for somebody to come drive me there but <laughs> no but your husband told you to get back in the plane with the person me. that just had a heart attack he didn't believe that she had well, she a heart seemed attack. fine after a little we went in the restaurant had a hamburger and played pac-man and we were fine she always loved playing pac there was a pac-man at the restaurant you sit in the, at the table it had an old pac-man right there where you sit sit right there at the table so you could play pac-man while you ate it was kind of neat right yeah so i figured oh, she's all right she'll be fine yeah yeah, <laughs> that's the last time you flew with her. But well, yeah, she wouldn't take any passengers after that. Yeah, you know, so because she lost her license, her medical, medical because of that. Yeah, but then continued to fly. Yes, for, for years quite a few. After yeah, that? quite a few. Mm-hmm. So, but, but but after that, what we had to do is we had to stay away from airports that have a, a control tower, like a lot of the flyers or they have a control tower, so she wouldn't go to any of them because because the FAA is usually walking around if they have an air show and. So she didn't want. In fact, her her good friend Bob Birch uh, was up. We had a mountain strip, right? It was on a weekend, right? Right. And uh, he had he had uh, a sun got in his eyes and he didn't have the power. I forget he 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 was going to land and it was he came in too long, too fast, and so he added power, but it uh, it was a little too late. And at the end of the at the end of the run, he hit a ditch and the plane flipped over and crashed. And so she 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 saw that, but our, our, there was another friend with a 140. Mark was there, right? Mm-hmm. And she decided she 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 just had to leave him there. She said because she knew the the police would be there and the FAA, and you know she was illegal flying, so she she had to leave him there. So she went back to Thunfield. She felt really bad about it. There was she said that you know they'll check, they'll find out I'm illegal flying. So she she left him there, and then Mark was there, right? Yeah. In fact, you want to tell the story about Tammy on that trip too? Well, what would be the penalty if you were caught? 
Uh, well, she's no medical. They would probably fine you or put you in jail. I guess they can. They can fine. Oh, they definitely fine you. You know, for, for flying without you know medical, right? Mm -hmm. But she, you know, and she was worried about other stuff. Maybe I don't know what else. She was. She didn't want nothing to do with the, the police or anybody, right? Right. Which the authorities, right? May have been for other reasons. Other reasons I don't know, <laughs> but <laughs> she actually let you know, which you know, left. You know, he was upside down. She didn't know if he, how how bad he was hurt or anything about him, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which, I mean, at the time, I mean, that was the man that she was. Yeah. Uh, ended up, uh, they be, ended Moving up being in, partners. Oh, tell yeah. the part about the flowers and the candy, about Bob Birch, too. Yeah, he was he was quite a few years older than her. A 10, at least, 15. He used to um, leave candy and flowers by her airplane, and she kept it. saying, Boy, I don't know what to do about this. If I ever, if he ever finds out about a, my past that I used to be a man, it would kill him. He'd have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, he was an older I don't guy. Know he was in his seventy-five or eighty, right? Yeah, yeah. Time, right. Yeah, right. So she didn't know what to do because he was giving her flowers and candy. So yeah, yeah. So, so. finally, I guess uh, she she decided she had to tell him something, right? Right. So she said she she thought, well, I'm going to tell him, and then I'll never see him again. So she said, she told him about the surgery, and he says, well, I've had a surgery, too, on my shoulder. He, he, he showed her <laughs> exactly his arm. the said, same I've thing. Had <laughs> I had, I've had some surgery right here in my arm. Well, it's not exactly <laughs> the same thing, but I don't, I, to this day, I don't know if Bob really knew or what. I don't know. Right. She said, I don't think he understood a word I said, but, you know, now I have a clear conscience. I did tell him. So. Yeah. <laughs> And they lived together for you know uh, two two years, yeah, before he right. died, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, but she was it was never a dull moment with her. We always had laughter. I mean, she was she had dry humor, and it was. I mean, can you imagine they're sitting in the, in, the, in the airport restaurant there, and all these these pilots were bragging about all their great trips and their flying ability, and no nobody knew except us. And one other couple, which usually weren't there, that she used to be a man, and she she probably was a better pilot than most of all these. Had more experience than most of these guys sitting there bragging. <laughs> Same way at, at where she worked at the Cicero Library too, right? Right. A research clerk, and the, you know we worked with mostly all women, I think, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And some of the women would have troubles with their car, and they'd be complaining or saying, "I don't know what I can't get my car started," or this or that. And she knew how to fix most anything, and so she she. She kind of would have to kind of say, "Well, I think you know, I think it could be this problem, that right." Right. She was funny about that. She didn't really didn't let, don't want to tell him that you know she used to be an auto mechanic, right? Yeah, Stuff yeah. Like she that. used to tell us all kinds of stories, stories about her work at the library too. You know, she said that she had a, a coworker that she nicknamed Betty Boop. That she said she she would just wouldn't get out of her chair. And uh, so somebody would come and ring the bell, and she'd be right next to the counter. But, you know, Barb was sitting way in the back, and they'd stand there and keep ringing for service. So Barb would actually jump up on the desks and climb over her desk, climb over the top of them, jump from desk to desk, and go to the counter to wait on somebody. Yeah. I mean, you know, she just. It would be pretty shocking to see a 55 year old woman yeah, do that. Over, yeah, she would do that. And then that one, what was that one actor? What was George his name? C. Scott. George C. Scott was. She said that he was there one time, and he wanted to check out some book about something on history, right? Right. So she she knew who he was, you know. <laughs> so she said, "Well, let me see your library card." And he said, "I don't have a library card." She says, "Well, I got to have some kind of ID. I can't just give you a book." 
<laughs> so he took his wallet out. He took every bit of every identification he could find in his wallet. And she's looking at it and she's still giving him a bad time, right? Right. And so yeah. the supervisor heard heard what was going on. So she says, excuse me. She says, I'll, I'll take care of this, you know. But I think she, I really think she wasn't going to let him check out a buck. She didn't care if he was a, a movie star, an actor, right? Yeah. But, yeah, but there was just lots of stories about the library where she used to work right all the time. Right. Yeah, she... She was just a character. Yeah. I mean. And then when she was retiring, they told her to write down, which which she does, because her boss never really knew, I guess he said. So she wrote it on a paper towel, which she does, right? Something like that. Which right. She, she said, I don't do anything here. Yeah. So well, well, no, I need to know what you're doing, so we're going to have to replace you, you know? And I forget what she told him, right? Yeah, she just kept telling him that, you don't need to replace me. I never did anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, they had a computer system. They used to have, what was the old the Dewey system, the cards, right? Yeah, the and that, Dewey Decimal and System. And then they, they modernized, the you know, her last few years there. And so they were, they were going to computers, right? Mm -hmm. And so her boss wanted her to learn how to work the computers, right? Right? Yes, and, and she didn't want any part of the computers. So she so. said, I'll tell you what. I can find a, I can find anybody who wants a book quicker than that computer can do it, right? I can find it because she was very sharp, right? Mm -hmm. So they had it. They, they did some kind of test, right? Someone come right. name a, name something to find, right? Right. And she would out. She could beat the computer. She knew exactly where the book was at. Right. Find it very, you know, within seconds, right? Yeah. So, so the guy said, "Okay, you don't have to use it. I guess forget it. You don't have to. You don't have to go to computer school." So <laughs> her last year or two, she, you know, she just did it the old way, right? Right. But she so, didn't have much interest in reading. That's what she said. That's what she said. I think yes. she read more than you can imagine. Because <laughs> we would, no matter what you wanted to talk about, she knew it. I mean, I'm not kidding. From building an atomic bomb to anything, electrical, ships, uh, the world situation, right? Right. She had to be a genius. Yeah, I think she had a high IQ, maybe 160. I don't know, right? She was Yeah. She was she just was amazing. Anything you, talk, you wanted to talk about, she knew, which, you know, which our daughter could talk a little bit about, too. You want to talk now, and then we'll tell you about the... Uh, after she died or what? Yeah, you talk about that now. Yeah, because Tammy. you lived with her. Yeah. Want to introduce yourself, Tammy? I'm Tammy Foreman. I'm the daughter of Pat and Ron. And I was um, a kid when a lot of this was playing out, sitting around the corner, listening to these amazing stories. And Barb was just larger than life to me, just unbelievable. Um, but when I was in college... I was doing an internship in Seattle, and so I stayed with Barb at her apartment for about three months. And uh, just during the week, I would I would do um, go to my internship and then um, go back to college on the weekends. And everything we would watch on the news, she would always say, "Oh yeah, I did that. Yeah, I I burned up a building once. Yeah, I killed a guy once. Just." everything really I killed a guy once that's what she said <laughs> <laughs> um all we would eat was cabbage and sausage and we would drink white grape juice and that was all that was in her fridge cabbage sausage white grape juice <laughs> mm, that's a tasty meal and I never thought to bring any food or suggest anything else because that's what we ate we had Toast for breakfast, but then dinner was always that. Um, and she was very weird about her bed. She didn't want anybody laying on her bed. It was um, a bumpy-looking mattress. And she was really nervous about that mattress. One time my dad tried to lay on her bed, and she just freaked out on him. So one time when I was staying there, she was going to go for go flying somewhere, and she made a big deal about 
that I was not to lay on her bed while she was gone. And that was the first thing she said when she came back. You didn't lay on my on my mattress, did you? And I was like, no. But the apartment was pretty sparse. Very sparse. Yeah, there was um, her her was her bed. Her bed was the kind that is up in the. You have to pull it out of the wall. A stand Murphy bed. Yeah, and then she had what a little plastic chair and a plant and a couch. I think. And so you were sleeping on the couch? Well, no. Um, she had a little mattress for me. And the springs uh, were broken. And so they would poke my back. Um, like they were poked through the mattress. <laughs> and so then one day, I was taking something out to the garbage, to the dumpster. And I saw a mattress that looked a lot better than my mattress. So I came back in and told her. And she and I went out. We threw out the mattress I had and got the one out of the dumpster and then I used them and after that <laughs> and uh one time I tried to clean her apartment and she thought that was hilarious I was trying to wash the walls because they were just covered in dirt you could just see where the sponge had gone um, and she just sat there and laughed at me she thought that was hilarious she also laughed at me when I was doing homework and she'd say why are you staring at that block of wood what are you doing she just thought it was so funny to watch me do homework. It was just, to her it seemed like the most ridiculous waste of time. But she worked at the library. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I was a little scared of her because I felt like she was capable of pretty much anything. And that time when she was so worried about the mattress, when she was gone, I actually had a nightmare that she came back and saw me on her mattress and shot me. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and we always wondered if maybe she had a little bit of that money in the mattress because it was very bumpy looking and it was just weird that she was so strict about nobody laying on her her bed. It would be pretty funny to have such a sparse apartment, you know, with a, like a plastic lawn chair but then have $200,000 in your mattress. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or really any amount of that D.B. Cooper money was would have been pretty valuable, I think. Um, but then um, she she stored her money in her all her money in her pocket at the time. She said she said she didn't want to have a bank account because she didn't trust the banks. And I said, well, what if somebody tries to steal your money out of your pocket? And she said, I I'd kill them. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> End of story. Speaking of, I want to once. She set up a little, it was a model, I think a model A, Ford had a, a voltage regulator. She set it up on her window because someone tried to break in her apartment and she set it up where if you moved the, try to open the window up, it would give you a shock, something like that. Yeah. Remember that, hun, too? Yeah. yeah. So she said, and she's, yeah, she, she set, so she, she, she set that up. She was really, because she was quite the electrician. So I think it was a model A, but. I think it was about both the regulator. I think that's what it was, right? Something like that. She said it, something like that. But she was very sharp about certain things, right? Yeah. How long did she live in that apartment? Quite a few years, I think, right? Yeah. She was really proud of that plant because she never watered it. <laughs> but it somehow <laughs> survived. <laughs> and didn't you move the plant for yeah. her and we ruin, killed, ruin it? We killed it. Yeah. We, we drove it from Seattle to Puyallup and... It was in the back of the truck, and I think it was the trip was too much for it. 
How much did she spend decorating that apartment, furnishing? $15 or she 20 She was really proud that yeah. she had furnished everything for 15 or yeah. $20. Goodwill. And she bought all her clothes at the Goodwill. That's where she shopped, you know. Yeah. And she had, remember the TV, that little tiny, I think a six-inch TV or something like that, a little tiny yeah. small TV? Yeah. Something like that, right? You would watch that every night, watch yeah. the news. And then when you watch different stuff, she would tell you, oh, I did that, right? Yep. It would be a house. Somebody burned a house down, right? She says, mm-hmm. oh, I've done that. Or you name it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to mess with her. No. <laughs> what about the homework? Remember that? When she I la- told about that. Yeah, she'd laugh at you doing homework. Why are you wasting time doing homework, right? Mm-hmm. Like that. Yep. What were you studying in school? I studied communications, and I was working at an ad agency in Seattle at the time. So I was just doing my homework and working for my internship. And hanging out with D.B. Cooper. That's and right. And hanging out with D.B. Cooper. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's Did all. you ever bring that up? No. I, I felt like she wouldn't want to talk to me about it because I always just heard from around the corner for the few months she was talking about it. And after that, she wouldn't talk to anybody about it. So I didn't feel like I could bring that up. How old were you when you heard that? Twelve? Twelve, probably. About 12. And was it hard to keep that to yourself? Yes, very hard. Very hard. I, I think I did. I can't think of we, anyone uh, I told, did I? I don't think I told anyone. It was very, very hard. And in fact, until she died, we didn't feel like we could tell people because they had taken away that statute of limitations. So We were the same way. It was a secret I had. And I'd be at, every now and then we'd bring her up or something. But I couldn't tell anybody about it. It was... Mm-hmm. It was it was really hard to keep a secret for over twenty years, something that we knew, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that knew her, after after it, you know it came out and stuff like that, you know, we told people and they you know, they didn't they could hardly believe it. You know, there was a few that thought there was something something odd about her, but most of them said you're kidding me. She used to be a man, and now you're saying she's she was DB Cooper. <laughs> so it, it, it I mean it it really blew the minds of a lot of our pilot friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. That no one had no idea, you know. And, and and in fact, the FBI, after the hijacking, came to Thun Field and they were checking to, to see if there were any skydivers and stuff like that out there. So they were walking around the field and she was probably right there. And they probably walked right by this older lady but with, with her little Cessna 140 and nobody would have given it a second thought. I mean, who would, you know, you, you, you know. They weren't looking for a lady. Right, they're not looking for a lady. You've seen pictures of her, you know, she's dressed kind of a little sloppy and, you know, right? She's Do you remember when the psychic came to Thun Field? Do you remember that? There was a psychic who thought that D.B. Cooper... Yeah, it was an article he wrote, yeah. A psychic that... that but didn't he come out to Thunfield and walk right past her? No? I don't think so, huh? Okay, I'm thinking of the other guy. Yeah, no, okay. I don't think so. But uh, but she was... Uh, she kind of liked it. To, at the time, she wanted to brag about the story. Before, in 76, before the hijacking, she had the University of Washington, a reporter, come down to Thunfield... And I, we have an article about it, you know, and they wrote about this 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 lady pilot, and she had a picture of her and her airplane standing, and she told about what it was like to fly and stuff like that. And then uh, after the hijacking, uh, another another article from the UW came out, and uh, I'm trying to remember the data. I think I have it here. And this article was interesting. It it, it almost mirrored the exact story she told us, and it was from the UW. This article, and she showed it to us. I think it was in. Maybe it was '74, something like that. I have the article here that I could, I could show you that, which is really, and it talked about this, the, the hijacking, and it said the person probably, f- I think, flies out at Thunfield, right? Right. Yeah. 
and uh, it had a lot of details. It it had a um, map of Woodburn where she said she had jumped. And um, the interesting thing was that at the time it made no sense, but in the article it says that uh, the uh, other countries would uh, pay lots of money to know what um, uh, what D.B. Cooper knew about uh, parachuting. And at the time, I thought that was just kind of a strange comment. But, uh, you know, all of the conspiracy theories after, uh, apparently the uh, 727 was actually um, used during the Vietnam War, uh, dropping troops in areas that the uh, United States probably shouldn't have been. All that uh, became common knowledge just uh, not too many years back after it, it, it had been top secret for many years. But I don't know. That might actually have something to do with uh, that one little sentence about uh, this person knew something about... Um, jumping that other countries would pay for i can't i just can't imagine what that could be you think that uh barb knew that the aft stairs could be lowered um yes she did know that the aft stairs could be lowered yes yeah she uh but she felt like it was pretty much common knowledge i i don't know but she was um in the merchant marines uh, she was in uh, Vietnam, and uh, the boats used to go up the river, and she used to hang out with the, uh, she called them the flyboys. And um, so she would have had knowledge, I think, of what was even going on over there, possibly. Um, she, I had a few of the letters, but I had to give them back to the family, and I keep thinking that I should, should uh, have the letters from Vietnam, uh, maybe now that I know about this other part of the story, I probably should request that they send them to me again because there might be something in there. And then another thing I've thought is really interesting about Barb is you guys talked about her just disregard for money. Mm-hmm. Complete. Complete. See, after, she, after her dad, her mom and dad both died, I think... The, Mom died first, or dad? Her mom first, and then her dad. Dad, and she inherited. It was two hundred thousand dollars, and she got a hundred thousand, and her brother Bill got a hundred thousand, and she just uh, she didn't even want to put it in the bank. She was she says I, they want to give me interest, and I don't want any. I don't want to make any money. So, and she gave away I think about twenty thousand dollars, ten thousand to a lady to two ladies right each got ten thousand that worked at UW. She just gave them ten thousand. They you know they they were having a hard time making it. They had kids and stuff right. But yeah, she 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 was, and she didn't do the hijacking for the money. It wasn't the money at all. It she was. inherited a hundred thousand dollars while she lived in an apartment with a plastic lawn yes. chair. Yes. Yes. And right. a nine-inch television. Uh, you right. got it. And drove an old beat-up Dodge. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yes. And speaking of cars, we could tell the story about she. She um, her Dodge finally blew up, right? So she bought a. Um, she was shopping for cars and. She saw this Dodge Challenger. I think it was 1970 Dodge Challenger with a big 440 engine and everything. And the sales guy, young kid, he says, uh, "Granny says you this this you don't want this car." And she says, "Oh, I think I do." So she says, "Let's go for a ride." So she she jumped in the driver's seat and just 
took off, floored it, and the guy was holding holding on for dear life. She said she tried to scare the heck out of this sales guy. She was flying around, had that thing just every which way, and they got back to the car lot, and she says, "I'll take it." Yeah. <laughs> So she uh, she took it to the airport and she would just do willies in the grass, just go spin around. It had a special extra brake pedal that you could lock the back brakes, you know, and it would spin around, right? Right. And she and she said she what she loved to do is get behind it. any kind of Japanese car, Toyota, Nissan, because she hates because she fought the Japs during World War Two, you know. So she was, you know, so <laughs> she uh, <laughs> so every time she came upon a Japanese car, she would just just floor it and get in front of them and just leave them in the dust, right? Right. In fact, one lady at uh, they were she was at a store, right? And there was a Japanese car, and she swung her door open and dented her her door. I don't know if a Toyota or what it was. So she got out and she had high heels on at the time. She said, right? She had a dress high. Mm -hmm. So she got out and she just slammed her foot into the fender into her high heels. Put a good dent in. Put a good dent in. She said, just little little teacher for driving a Japanese car, something like that. She said, right? For hitting me. She hit her with the door, right? But right. she would do stuff like that. You know, this yeah, is you don't that, see what, many 55-year-old women doing that. No, this no. is stuff a man would do possibly, but not a, an older mm -hmm. lady, yeah. Well, she, she was uh, all dressed up one time. We decided we would yeah. go out to dinner, and she was wearing a dress and, and nice shoes. And we were walking in downtown Seattle, and um, there was uh, kind of a... Uh, look like a gang walking towards us and uh, Ron says said um, Barb I think we better cross the street these guys don't look too friendly and she said don't worry Ron I'll take care of you <laughs> yeah, and you know she could have she probably she had a black belt she probably could have some. and you were 20 years younger than her yes at least yeah at least maybe more of that yeah at least 20 yeah, yeah. but yeah she was fine she, she just kind of chuckled says, don't worry about it I, I can take care of it I'll take care of you Ron <laughs> Yeah, she was very, I said she was humorous to, you know, to hang out with, right? Yes. She was just, you know. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of tribal, one time we were flying to, to Seattle for a your anniversary or something, right? I don't remember what it was. Birthday right. or something, right? Right. There was a restaurant at Boeing Field, so we flew over there and we had dinner. And then we took off, we were heading back, and then the weather got really bad. Pretty soon we couldn't, we couldn't get, the, the clouds moved in, the ceiling dropped down to about six 800 feet. I called the McCard Air Force Base to check the weather, and they said it was it was IFR down the 600 foot. So I did a 180, and we went back to Boeing Field, and I landed. And by this time, it was like one o'clock or something. So I called Barb up, and I said, "Hey, Barb," I said, "We're we're we're stuck at Boeing Field. We went out for dinner, and I can't fly the plane back. Can you uh, give us a ride back to Pialam?" And she said, "Sure." So she. Picks us up at the Boeing Field. We get in that uh, 70 uh, Dodge Challenger. And there's a tunnel in Seattle that you got to go through by near the Space Needle. And we started out at 35. We came out of the tunnel at uh, over 100 miles an hour, I think 110. Just, it was 2 in the morning, right? And I said, God, what are you doing, Barb? She says, well, I'm kind of low on fuel. We got to get to the gas station right away. She said, <laughs> I said, Barb, that. You know, I mean, you know, you use more gas when you floor it like that. But that was when we had gas shortages, right? Right. And so she said, "No, we got to get, I got to get, get some gas here." So, but she would do stuff like that. I mean, she could scare the hell out of a person, you know, going through a tunnel over a hundred miles an hour coming out of that tunnel. Yeah, I forget what the name of that tunnel was. Can't remember that. But she was, you know, when you hung out with her, it was never, it was absolutely never a dull moment, right? Laughter yeah. every weekend. We just roll around the grass laughing at stuff she say or do. Right. Right. Yeah. 
So she loved that Challenger, but yeah. then uh, it ended up getting stolen, and they somebody set it on fire, fire when they were through with it, and it was totally ruined. So she said that she didn't want a car that she would fall in love with anymore, so she bought a Chevy 2 or whatever Nova. they were. Nova. Horrible thing. Horrible little car. It's junk. And um, I went out one day, and, and, and she said that the, the heater didn't work, you know. And so she, she came out, and she took the heater out, and she was just kicking it around the airport. It, she was she just, knocked it out, came out of the door, and she just started kicking it, kicking it. <laughs> she hated She absolutely hated this. It was a Chevy Nova, and it was a six-cylinder, gutless car, and she hated every, you know. Yeah, and she just hated that car for yeah. the whole time she, she had was, it she yeah just, she was funny in fact when she was working on it remember before uh, her sleeve was showing you could see all her tattoos and i said barb your your tattoos are showing she was she was so mad she didn't even care she finally got the heater car it's under in, in the underneath the dash and she just got it and threw it out and just started kicking it all the way quite a ways down she was so mad at the stupid car yeah so she didn't keep that too long before she got another dodge i think right yeah yeah something like that but like I say, it was always enter- entertaining with Barb, right? Right. <laughs> After her her friend uh, Bob Birch uh, died, within four hours, and she told her she was going to do that when he died. She says, "I'm going to be out of here." She was within four hours. She was gone, and she didn't tell anybody where she was going, anything. So, you know, we never heard from her. It had been, I think, about two years, right? Year mm-hmm. and a half, two years. And we were at a, a flying air show, and one of her friends was the Grubers, where their name were Grubers. And I, evidently, she was still in contact with them. So they were, I was talking to her about it or something. I don't know. We mentioned Barb. Said, oh, yeah, she's, she's, uh, she's living down in Nevada. But they wouldn't tell us where she was living. She said she, she doesn't want us to tell anybody where she's living. But at least I knew, you know, or that's right, she, 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 was, she was down in Nevada, but she had died. That's right, yeah. She moved down to the battle and she had died, right? Yeah. That, no, because no? remember you went and visited her. Oh, that's right. I'm, I'm yeah. getting ahead of it. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> no, forget it. Okay, we better back up a little bit. So uh, anyways, uh, so then uh, go ahead and start how you found her with the census and all that. Tom <laughs> I well, that was that came later too. Anyway, uh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Later. Yeah, Barb Barb disappeared and. Um, so uh, I went on the internet and I searched around and I found that she was um, outside of uh, Carson City, Nevada in a little place called Wellington. Do you remember what year this was? Uh, it had to be 2000, around 2000. Around 2000. So anyway, so so Ron decided that he would go visit her, but he wasn't going to announce that he was coming ahead of time because... She probably wouldn't want to see him, so uh, he just uh, flew down there and he called her. I was uh, down in Reno when I called her. Yeah, I got her. We had a number, so I called her and she answered. I said, "Crank up," and she knew it was me because we didn't say hello. We always said "crank up," which means let's go flying, right? Yeah, right. And uh, so anyway, she was. It sounded like she was really disgusted that he found her. You know, how did you find me? Type of a thing, and right. then, well, since you're here, you might as well come out. Yeah, so I told her exactly how you know how we, how we had how did we locate her through the census, right? No, no that, that was the the census was okay. When we, we had we tried to find number. her brother after she passed okay. That's away. right. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah. 
So she was. So we had. So we. I visited her for two days, and first thing she said, "Well, we got to wait till tomorrow morning." Uh, yeah, tomorrow morning my check comes in, and then uh, we'll have some cash, and we'll go. We'll go gambling, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I said, "Okay." So I went to her, and she went to that one of the machines, that one of the, I think it was a store or something like that, bank machines, and checked to make sure her money was deposited. She said, "The first thing I do, I gotta buy all my meds for the month." And she bought some few groceries, and she says, we're good to go. She gambles. And she would, you know, she got paid, I think it was once a month, and her check, right? I think it was Social Security and the, the retirement, right? Mm -hmm. So she would, uh, she, she said, I will go gambling, and if I blow it all, I blow it all. And we just, I got food, and I got my meds. I'm good for the, good for the month. That's how she lived. That's literally how she lived. Mm -hmm. And she, her, I think it was let, probably close to 1000 is all she was making back then right. with Social Security and her retirement so, from the library right yeah and we kept trying to talk her into letting us buy her a computer so she could uh, start writing a little bit because we we really wanted her to be able to get some of her life down and she had always wanted me to write a, a story and I didn't know if I had enough information to ever write a story on her she was mainly wanting people to understand transgenders. So, you know, we weren't really looking for the D.B. Cooper story at the time. It was just basically, um, you know, people just didn't understand transgenders back then. And she wanted people to know that it really wasn't a choice for some people, that it's something that is so strong that they're born with that um, she had to do what she did or she would kill herself. She couldn't. She couldn't live the way she was in the wrong body. And um, so anyway, we he couldn't talk her into it. And you know, that's when you met her her friend that one friend that she had down there right. that uh, had. Uh, anyway, then he came back and he was planning on going back down and just bringing her a computer, whether she wanted one or not. You know that maybe we could just get her started. And um, then we had other things come up at home and everything. So about two years later, we ran into some friends of the friends of hers that did uh, still keep in touch with her, and uh, they told us that she had passed away. So I went and looked up the county records, and I managed to get the death certificate and everything. And um, so then we knew that. Uh, that she was gone and I started feeling really bad because I had promised her that I was going to help her write this story and and now she was gone and I thought I really want to try to write it so but I, I definitely needed more information than I had so I um, got on the internet and I I knew that she had been uh, uh, lived in Florida when she was born and so I looked at the 1930 census in Florida, and I got her brother's first name. And I knew that he was living down in a, uh, near a valley in... Uh, Long Beach. Um, well, at that time, he wasn't. Yeah, the census was in, was in Long Beach. That's where they were all living down there, remember? Right, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, anyway, I got, I got his name, and then I looked him up. Uh, on, on just on the internet, and I found two people named William Dayton near the area where I knew he was living, and I sent letters to both of them. That they're about the right age. They were about the right age, 
And um, anyway, we, within a few days, got a, a letter from, uh, or we got a phone call from, from Barb's uh, brother's daughter. And um, she uh, asked us, one of the first things out of her mouth was, uh, did she ever tell you anything about D.B. Cooper? And uh, that was really quite a shocker because I had really never, never believed the story uh, totally. I just thought that, uh, you know, maybe she was, you know, just so lonely and wanting friends that maybe she was just telling stories that, that uh, she thought that she needed to do something to make people like her because she was just so down on herself all the time. She offered for us to uh, come down, and she said that she had diaries and she had pictures and letters, letters and all kinds of stuff. And I couldn't get away from work, and so Ron turned out to be my research guy. <laughs> I love that job too. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, I went down there, and then they uh, they took me to uh, where where Barb's ranch, where the family lived, down there, and. What's the name of that place? I'm trying to remember. Kathy's Valley. Kathy's Valley, yeah, Kathy's Valley, and all that was left. It was quite a drive. It was about a 45 minute drive to get there, and we got there, and all that's left is the fireplace. You can see where the house used to be, and then they, uh, and then they took me up. It was a little behind that the fireplace where that. They took me up a hill, and they were showing me where that uh, Barb's, uh, you know, dad and and I guess Bobby back then, right? But they had dynamited this quarry and made it made an area for the water to sit and made a big hole and then they had pipes going down to where the house was at and there was still no electricity. They never was they were so far out there was no electricity and they lived there for I think maybe a, probably ten or a dozen a dozen years, I think they lived down there. Right. Something like that, yeah. So that's the first story he was able to, to verify because she had told us about her using the dynamite to bring water to the house and all of that. And then he got to see it in person. Yeah, and the, and I asked about the mines. She, they had a couple of gold mines that were nearby, and sure enough, so they took me to the gold mines, and uh, they were both boarded up, but they weren't too far from the property. We went to the, you know, it was a little swampy area. I went across, and and I took some pictures of of the gold mines. So you know, the stories about her, you know, having gold mines and stuff like that. There were the gold mines, so that was that was true too. And then I, I went and saw Rena. Then was that next or next trip? Maybe, huh? I went and saw her daughter, and I spent, I think I spent uh, a couple of days with her daughter, and we were going to visit, uh, you know, Barb's mother, uh, Barb's wife, I should say, right? Yeah, it sounds weird. <laughs> it's weird. Was going to go visit Barb's, you know, Dixie was her name, and it was late, so we said, well, we'll go visit her tomorrow. And then in the middle of the night, she got cried ill, and she ended up in the, in the hospital, in the ICU section of the hospital. So me being the good investigator I am, we said, well, let's go visit her then. I'll take a tape uh, recorder with me. Well, she couldn't, she had uh, holes, flexo or something, in her, helping her breathe, right, in her mouth or something. So I said, well, I'll give her a pencil. She could write, maybe. I had a little pad of paper. And she was hooked up to all this stuff on her, you know, was, and every time she would move her arm or anything to try to write, the alarms would go off, so uh, I guess the nurses decided we couldn't stay. So I never got to interview uh, Barb's uh, wife, which sounds really strange at the time to me. So I missed out on, on that opp opportunity for that. And then I, um, 
guess yeah. So then I head, I think I guess I headed back up to to uh, Puyallup, back up home. Right, and he he came back with um, um, suitcases I had full of uh, suitcases full of uh, diaries, big suitcase of diaries, mm -hmm. uh, letters, envelopes with the letters from when she was in the. She was in the Army Air Force, and she was a merchant marine. Merchant marine, right? Yeah. Right. So, anyway, then my fun began because I started going through everything, and um, the first thing I did was, this DB Cooper thing is beginning to bug me. I'm going to prove that it, that she was not DB Cooper, and then I can go on writing the story that I had started out normal, to write. The original story was going to be called uh, Two Lives of Barb Dayton." That was our story. Nothing to do with T.B. Cooper, right? And so I started looking at all of the Thanksgivings leading up to Every, what she was doing on Thanksgiving Day. And the mother would mention either Bobby was there or Bobby she was um, overseas was overseas at such and such a place or here or there or anything. And then I get to 1971 and... It said, I don't have any idea where Bobby is. This is really unusual. I haven't heard from him. And uh, so I thought, well, that didn't exactly do what I thought it was going to do. That, that got <laughs> but, you, um, right? Maybe. Yeah. And so then I started looking at the years following that. And yeah. he always contacted his mother on Thanksgiving. Bobby was home, either home or if she wasn't, she was overseas somewhere as a merchant marine, right? Yeah. Right. So we thought, that's really interesting, huh? Right. So then... Then I started uh, um, going through some of the letters that uh, she wrote home, and uh, I started verifying more stuff that uh, she was in the Philippines during those those uh, years that she said she was on the ships and during the war. And uh, but I still didn't have any any proof of the fact that she uh, she had told us that she had gotten lost on a, a boar hunt and ended up fighting with the Moro tribe and uh, trying to get, she finally made her way back to the ship and then uh, the, she was actually found to be AWOL and uh, they put her in uh, prison with the Japanese. Um, that, and um, anyway, the only way that she managed to get out is that they needed a, a Merchant Marine to be seaman, seaman, first class, first class to and, be able to get. And one of the someone said, "Well, they, I think there's one in the prison with the Japanese," so that's how she got out of the prison. But she right. said they would. The food was they would. It was like a trough, like you feed pigs, and the food would go down a trough, and you had like a, a little bowl or something, and you'd scoop up the food. That's what she said it was like in the prison camp there in, in the Philippines. But uh, and then we got her. We got her uh, records when she was a Merchant Marine and. She was the AWOL for that period, too, and they took away her seamanship card because she was missing, you know, at that time. Right. So she, that At the like time, it. she thought that they were going to shoot her. She wasn't sure what she was going to do for, you know, for desertion, you know, because it was during the war. And even though you're, it's, it's a merchant marine, is kind of like you're in the, the military service back then, too, I believe. Right. So, yeah. Yes, and then and then with from the letters, I was able to verify that she was in Vietnam. Along Vietnam, the, oh yeah, uh, we got letters when she was in Vietnam. The, uh, she talked about being on on the Mekong Delta, yeah. Mekong Delta, and one she, one story she said she was uh, during the day these the the, the Vietnamese would help unload the ship or load it, probably unload most of it. 
So at night they took turns guarding. So she was on guard duty, and all of a sudden she saw one of the the, the Viet Cong snuck on the boat, all dressed in black, and so she jumped the jumped the the guy, got him stopped, and uh, when she took a look at him, it was one of the same kid that was helping unload the ship during the day. Yeah. So she wrote about that. She says you're not gonna believe it, but the same young kid that was helping you know unload the ship at night he's a Viet Cong. <laughs> Something like that. So, but she had, you know, there was a, there was some other stories about in Vietnam too that uh, right. the letters too, right? Right. And so she had told us these stories, and then we were able to verify that they were all true too. So. She said that uh, she would volunteer to go down to the Mekong Delta, and you would get a five hundred dollar bonus if your if your if the ship got hit with a with a missile or a bomb, right? So right. She always volunteered. There was a certain area that you had to volunteer to take the freighter down the river, mm-hmm. and so she she. She would volunteer for it because she would make an extra five hundred dollars to go on that ship, that freighter, I guess. So yeah, it sounds like that's a theme in her life, just like a disregard for her own safety. Absolutely. Right. Back to when when we would go flying, like I said, she liked dangerous places to fly. And uh, one time, she remember she was talking. She said, "She said, you know, sometimes I just feel like flying out to the ocean, and when the plane runs out of gas, it runs out of gas, and I just go down in the water, right?" Mm-hmm. Or flying right into Mount Rainier, she would say, right? Right. Every now and then she would have weird thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, too. Right. But, yeah. Yeah, she was, you know, she would could be such a happy person, you know. We'd, we'd laugh and have a great time, and then sometimes she was just really, really down. She would get, yeah. Just, so she was, but most times she was pretty up and, and happy. But every now and then she would get kind of. Right. But. Um, a little bit down, Right. Right. But you know, as we get to know, we got to know the family a little bit, and you know, uh, uh, Barb's niece told us that um, Bill, Barb's brother, was watching television when the D, when DB Cooper was uh, the DB Cooper caper happened, and uh, he uh, saw the sketch on the television, and he said, "My God, that's Bobby." And he says, and that's something that that uh, Bobby, Bobby would could e- do easily have done, right? And so she she remembered that too. That uh, you know he thought it was was him too. But we started getting more and more uh, things verified, and um, and then I kind of at some point turned into be a believer too that it was actually true. And so we started. Uh, changing the, the book around about halfway through I went back and started putting in stuff that led to be led it to be that we were going to go to the D.B. Cooper side of things and that's our story and we're sticking <laughs> to it right <laughs> but yeah it's just it was just she was she was a very interesting person yeah so it's, it was a little sad near the end when she got kind of paranoid about you know about the, the D.B. Cooper story and definitely didn't want to talk about it and Right. She just, you know, and she had lots of friends here, and I don't know why she just wanted to get away from everybody, right? I don't know if she knew. She, I think she thought we knew too much about the whole story, and she was worried that we would possibly turn her into the FBI, which, of course, we never would. But I think maybe she was thinking that or something, because, like I said, when she left, when the guy she was living with died, she she was gone. Yeah, well, I, I also think that with being with Bob Birch, she finally got to the point that everything she had gone through had had finally now she was actually feeling that she was a woman 
and she was living a woman's life, and she tried to divorce herself from everybody who knew different, and um, I think that's really why she was trying to get away from us sometimes. It could be too, maybe, yeah. Yeah, but also just the story that, you know, if it came out now that she was D.B. Cooper, it would end all of that with Bob, and, you know, I think that's why she just, wanted to just get away from us but you know if we stopped by there once in a while and she would be really friendly to us but she wouldn't make any effort to see us before she no she never came to our house no more at all yeah Yeah. but anyway but i never never i've always thought of her as as one of my best friends i've ever had so you know i just never did quite totally understand why she ended up like that well, your daughter Tammy said she was family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was like family. Yeah, she was over here every weekend. Mm-hmm. We had dinner with us every Sunday. Yeah. And when you guys started to investigate the case, you went to the area where she said she hid the money. Yes, yes. I found it. I found it from the air, and then I was able to drive to it after yeah. that. Well, when they would go down to uh, oh, that's fly, right, yeah. on flying. Uh, this is way before DB Cooper stuff, right? Right. We used to fly down to California, Redding, all the time for a Cessna 140 flying. And when we'd get by in the Woodburn area, we were flying Interstate 5. And what was the other river? I'm trying to remember. We used to follow was on mm-hmm. the uh, north side. Anyway, she would always disappear. This one area it was always by Woodburn. She would her plane would just sway off, and you wouldn't see her at all in the morning. And pretty soon she would scoop up, and she'd come back and meet us, right? And uh, that ha- that happened a couple times. This is before I. Before the D.B. Cooper stuff I knew about, right? This is before, and then it made sense after we found that out. I think she was flying over to see if anything was disturbed or anything, see if there was any, any you know, they built over there where the, the hazel, hazelnut farm was, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I told this friend of mine, this one trip we were going to go over there, Mark, I said, watch this. When we get near Woodburn, Barb's going to disappear to the left. She's going to fly in. You, you, she'll, you won't see her plane. She'll go way off. And sure enough, there she goes. I said, see? I said, you know. And then I said, there's something up there. I said, I don't know what's going on, but she's checking on something over there, right? Yeah. Right. So that was interesting too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then when she confessed to being D.B. Cooper, she then she gave us the details of, of how she uh, found the area for the jump by flying her little 140 down there. And she gave us the way to, to find it. And so Ron... Uh, flew r140 down and kind of spotted it from the air where the where the jump exactly how she described it yeah from the air i found it and so we drove down and uh went right to it just about yeah we we found the the ranch there were two cisterns at the time but it was on private property so i was a little leery of trying to open them up and take a look at them i forgot i want to get caught but at least i knew where they were at and everything was exactly as she described it too right right and then we took the walk to the um, bus station. I walked, yeah, I walked from the cistern where the money was hid to the uh, bus station. It took about 20 minutes. I wanted to see how long it would take to walk to, yeah. to Woodburn bus station. Right, which was ex- what she had told us. So right. we kind of just tried to retrace all of the steps that she said she yeah. had taken. And if she was making up a story, she would have had to actually go down to Woodburn and walk that area and she gave such details i mean it was a a white house it was a tractor kitty corner and you know 
the tractor wasn't there no more by that time, of course. Right. But, but so. um, yeah, and j just by, you know, her directions to be able to find the place was, yeah. you know, kind of, I know, started and, uh, making me the, believe Where everything. the money was hid was way away from the farmhouse. You, could, you couldn't even see the farmhouse because it was way, way away. It's a pretty mm -hmm. good little, I'm not sure how, probably a good half mile away, I think. Right. Something like that. So we took, we went out and got the name of the people that lived there now, uh, at that time off of the mailbox, and we tried to call them to see if they'd let us go in and, and check out the cisterns, yeah. but they didn't want any part of us. They so. did not. They, they kept saying, they asked us, well, who who was living there at the time, you know? And I didn't know who was living there. I said, I don't know. I just know that this was in 1971, and this friend of ours said that, you know, she'd buried some money in the cisterns, you know, and we'd like to take a look. And so. We're not gonna let you on our part. We don't know who you are, right? Yeah. They were they were pretty rude to us too. I remember that so well. Right. Guess we're not gonna get on that property, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I bet they got off the phone with you and looked inside. The That's what I thought. Yeah, I think they. I think. I think they may have, right? Yeah. I think they may have. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. But yeah, I got. I've got. I should get. A, I have a sketch of that. How she told us it was a forty-five degree from. I think it was Aurora Airport. She described it. You know, in different ways. She didn't tell us. You know, right. we had no address and nothing to find it, right? Mm -hmm. But in the air, I found it. Exactly how she's. It was easy to find from the air. A perfect picture of it too. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it is a good place to jump because you got the, the Victor Airway flies right over that area, and it flies right exactly uh, from Portland right over Interstate Five, and you you've got the lights of Interstate Five right there, and you've got these these big fields, you know, empty fields plus the you know plus the hazelnut orchards, right? And it's really a good. You know, and these things are probably twice the size of a football field to jump on. You can jump either side of Interstate 5, you could have jumped, you know. And now they've got a big mall on the one side on the, be on the, on the, uh, be the west, yeah, the west side of it now. Mm -hmm. But back in 71, they didn't have any of that there, so there was a lot, even more places. So you could have jumped, you could have actually closed your eyes and hit a field down there, you know, just stay away from the freeway pretty much, right? One way or the, or the other, so. And Ron, you were saying you had a, some thoughts about explaining the pressure bump, why everyone oh, that's the right, drop that's right. zone yeah. is an aerial. Well, first off the plane, it was a really rough, rough night. It was very strong winds, and the plane was flying with the gear down, and the uh, flaps 15 degrees. Well, if you ever notice when, you, when you're coming in to land on an airplane, you ever notice how rough it is? It's always, the plane's rocking around, because it's, it, the plane is not clean. It's made to fly with the gear up and the flaps up. So when you got the, the gear hanging down there, you got more turbulence and the flaps too. And it's rough anyway, so I don't, it, you know. So, and I think what she did is she opened up the door and then they, when she opened that door, it lost, it wasn't pressurized, but what pressure was in the airplane, the pressure gauge, it fluctuated a little bit, right? It did that. And then she probably climbed down on the stairs a little bit and, and well, she it, said she yeah. climbed down on yeah. the stairs at first, to yeah, to look to get her bearings right, yeah, right. And I think as when when she came back up is when I think the plane may have did a, a little curtsy, it's like a little trim or something. It, it possibly did a little curtsy, but that doesn't mean anybody jumped out of the airplane. That just means somebody's moving up or down it. That necessarily does not mean she, that she jumped. But I, but I was thinking I don't know how they could tell much anyway because it was rough as heck flying that. I've flown airplanes with you fly with the gear down and flaps. That it isn't going to be, and it's very windy, and the weather was bad. So the uh, and the plane was just above its stall speed. Yeah, it was just above its stall speed. And in fact, they were actually the, on the pilot transcripts. 
uh, the captain was worried about picking up ice also because the temperature was cold and stuff like that. So it's, uh, you know, but, but so, and what they did is the, uh, after that, they decided to fly a 727 over the ocean and they put a, a dummy weight, about 200 pounds, right? And they decided they would slide it off, but they didn't, you know, and, but they, the, what they goofed up, they told the pilot, we're going to slide it off now. So they did it and the pilot reported, yeah, I feel a little, a little curtsy. Well, the pilot, they shouldn't have said anything to the pilot. Let him probably guess if it when they, when they, they slid the, uh, the 200 pound, you know, sled off, right? I thought that wasn't really a, a very, uh, a very accurate test, but because he knew already, they said, okay, we're going to slide it off. So he was waiting for anything, you know, and they did that, you know, and he said, yeah, I can, you know, felt a little that curtsy, right? You know, so I don't, I don't think it was a very accurate uh, test that they did with the, uh, the FBI up there too. Speaking of the FBI, what's been the FBI's reaction to your guys' story? Absolutely zero. <laughs> the main, the uh, the Tacoma FBI it was a young guy named uh, David Browser. Jeremy. Jeremy Browser. He was he was very excited about it. Right. He was just he said, "Can you? What do you got? You got some DNA? What do you got? You know?" So. I wasn't there. I was sick at the time, so uh, I, the next day I brought in I brought in Barb's DNA. I brought in her hairbrush. I also brought in samples of her brother's hair. When her brother died, the niece saved cut off some of the hair. I figured I might be able to get some DNA from the hair, also stuff like that. So I gave it to uh, our lawyer, and he took it to the FBI. And that was in 2006, and. Here it is, 2017, and we haven't heard one word back from them, zero. And not only that, but we had a couple reporters check with the FBI, and they've never heard of the foremans. They don't know who we are. They have no record of anything. So that's quite amazing to me. I don't know what the reason is, but, you know, zero, yeah. So I don't know if they checked the, the DNA and they found out, well, maybe it matched. Because, you know, shortly after we turned all that in, they came out on the news on Channel 5 and they announced that they uh, they uh, lost the cigarette butts. They have no DNA, right? That's what they said, actually, right? Well, they said they, they all they had was, was the a tie. partial On the DNA tie, and it wasn't enough. Anybody, just a, like, anybody could have spit on the tie, right? It was a partial, right? It wasn't even a right. complete DNA. Right. But, it, but prior to that, they had had, DNA, they had DNA from the cigarette butts. So in 2000, they had it, and... 2006 they no longer have it so it's it's quite a mystery and you talked to bruce uh, smith about that too right the uh, cigarette butts or not did you yes yeah yeah i mean the fbi doesn't appear they've handled this case uh, all that great no uh so so that's where we sit right now but you know we have a our story has a lot a lot we spent three years writing the story and and, and getting evidence for our book and everything and you know and then they don't they won't even the main office won't even wouldn't give us the time of day at all what's whatsoever so it's kind of kind of disappointing right um yeah but um yeah. <laughs> i think uh from other stories that i've heard that they they really haven't haven't done too much to to really investigate this yeah. case so I, I don't know don't if understand. we thought well, maybe because he was a transgender and it was not politically correct, or they thought a couple locals from Charlotte they didn't want a couple locals solving the Stevie Cooper mystery because usually the saying is the FBI always gets their man. Well, in this case, it's not a man; it's a woman. <laughs> so I don't. I, I really don't know. Yeah. yeah. 
Or we could fall in with the conspiracy theorists. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that too, right? I don't know. Yeah. How sure are you guys that it, it was Barb? That Barb is D.B. Cooper? 110%. Absolutely. <laughs> I would swear on any amount of Bibles and anything else, right? And with and me, it's 99.9. 99.9, yeah. She, and she's a, uh, she was a, you know, IT, charge of IT uh, troubleshooting, or what you call it? Help desk, right? Help desk. Right. Software designer. She's, you know, pretty, you know, pretty intelligent, stuff like that. So she yeah. was very hard to convince about this story, right? Till the, till we, till we got, you know, we, till we combed her hair back, put glasses on, and we took a picture of her, and then we, did that some more didn't checking, even right? do it for me. That didn't even do it. Did it for me. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, "Jesus Christ, it's it's it's, it's a match." Yeah, it sounds like you were skeptical for about ten minutes. And yeah, she was skeptical for years. And years. years. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I figure if she believes it now, it's you know, but yeah. you know, but it is a it's, it is extremely unusual story. You know, the premise of you know this person you know. Has a sex change and uh, hijacks an airplane, you know, two years later, and you know, but uh, we always thought the whole uh, the whole thought of it is is it's, it's a perfect disguise. It's absolute, you know, it's the per it's the perfect disguise. And like a lot of people kept thinking, well, maybe this person is a Canadian because nobody in the U.S. seems to know this person who he is. The, the identity is a mystery, right? They thought, well, maybe he's a Canadian or something, but no Canadian. You know, and she could, we had her, she could speak uh, like a man too. We had her change her voice one time. We said, let me hear you talk like a man, Barb. And she could change it. She, she would have a deep voice too. She would sound like a guy, right? right? But she trained her voice and she talked kind of soft and quiet, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. We have so many stories though that, uh, I don't know, just every time I think about her, I just... Think of I, I half the time I start laughing. I mean, it's like we went. Uh, she took us gold panning in Eastern Washington one time, and our son was probably about ten years old, and uh, she was apparently still taking pills to keep her beard from growing. Hormones, and uh, so and, yeah. And she didn't have her shaving gear with her, right? And she didn't have her shaving gear with her, and then just watching my son stare at her was she started to develop her her shadow, shadow her, yeah her uh, overnight shadow she had a pretty oh, good man. beard pretty good shadow and he kept staring <laughs> at her and looking and it was just it was just strange yeah yeah but, you know we didn't we never found any gold but we had pans and she 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 knew a lot about geology geology and she studied she said this is a good area it was on the east side of the mountains and we looked kind of silly all these people were with fishing poles and we were walking around with uh gold pans and we're yeah. you know on the, on the by the river, yeah, and little shovels digging up the dirt and mm. panning. So but, yeah, right. She was, but we just had so much fun with her. I mean, yeah. just amazing. Do you guys think this case will be solved, or do you even want it to be solved? We're about fifty-fifty on that. <laughs> One way I would love it to be solved, just to prove to all these people that think that we're quite, quite uh, disturbed with the whole story, right? <laughs> Uh, that were really nuts. So, in uh, that reason, and then also, I think it would make a it would make a terrific movie. Even if we don't, even if we're not able to prove it, I think it would make a really, really. I think it'd be a good movie. It would be an exciting movie and a really, you know, 
great movie, I believe, right? right. And especially the, with the transgender nowadays, it's so it's quite common nowadays. And I think uh, I think uh, transgender people would the LGBT LGBTQ now, whatever they say, right? I think they would enjoy a movie like that probably. And they need a hero. They don't really have any heroes that I know of, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. What do you think? Anything there? Um, just that I I really don't care too much now if it gets solved or not. I think I so, feel like I know the story, and I don't know. I just. But in a way, it's it, it's nice to have a mystery that that uh, you know when you think about it that it that, no, it just stays a mystery like that, keeps the something about it right. Right. <laughs> so it's um fifty fifty one way or the other. So yeah, you know. Similar to the Amelia Earhart, which is, how many years was that? I'm trying to remember. From 37 to now. Figure that out. Can you figure that? You're good at that math, right? <laughs> huh? Go for it. What? 80 years. 80? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, 80 years. Right. And we saw a, a special on the Discovery Channel, and it looks like they've solved the mystery of that. Amelia Earhart. Yeah, the the Barb Dayton story is incredible. It is such an amazing story. With D.B. Cooper, even without D.B. Cooper, right. she led an incredible life, and everything about her is interesting. In in fact, on the on the uh, the History Channel when they wrote it, but remember that one guy, the young guy, right? He was driving in the car back mm -hmm. to Seattle or something. He said, "You know what?" He said, "If anybody could do it," he says, after listening to the to Ron and Pat form the story. She, she, I, I think she could easily have jumped out of that airplane. He said something like, "Do you remember that one? I don't know if you watched that or not." Yeah, that one. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah oh, the History sure. Channel. Yeah, I remember yeah. when they were riding in the car and the young guy was saying, "You know what? If anybody, I think, I think she could have done that with no yeah. problem, right?" He also said that he wished that it, it would be proven that she was the one who did it. He did uh, say that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. He said, "I wish that we could prove that that was her, yeah. right?" I doubt if it will ever happen. <laughs> yeah. Has there been anyone in the LGBT community who's reached out to you guys to talk to you about Barb? Um, yeah, there's a, a man that we've talked talk to that is, uh, he wants us to come and do a, a speech at the next LGBT, uh, or no, it's a transgender uh, meeting in conference or something, right? Conference yeah. in, in, uh, he'd, and yeah, he'd like Olympic us to tell Peninsula. Barb's story. And so I, I think we're going to end up doing that. And then we, uh, we've done a few book clubs, and one of them was for uh, um, a gay, gay group. Gay women's group. Gay women's group. And they love the story. Right. And she's their hero. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of, I don't know. I think, I, I think people who, you know, hopefully things are changing now, but I think that that the uh, LGBT community has had such a battle through, you know, getting accepted and everything that I think they actually can understand how Barb could actually be pushed to do some of the crazy things that she did. Right. And I think that makes the story feel very real to them. And she was one of the first to have the surgery done in Washington He's State. First, right? Yeah, the first person yeah. to have it, yes. The first. The, the first, first in And Washington, she convinced yeah. the uh, doctors there to do it. They had never done it before. And so they probably checked what they were doing it in Maryland. That's where she spent some time there. And they, uh, she spent four months in Maryland trying to you know, persuade them to do it. She had no money, so she, she needed this to be done for free. 
So they said they wouldn't do it because of her age, because she was in her 40s then, early 40s, and because of her physical, you know, her structure too, and, and her she tattoos. Covered in tattoos, Covered right? in tattoos, <laughs> and, you know, she was pretty pretty manly looking still, right? Yeah. So they wouldn't, that's why they, they said it was better to have someone that was in their 20s to do that, you know, right? Right. Yeah. But I think the saddest part of the whole thing is uh, when I was going through everything and we got the psychological evaluations from the University of Washington and just um, in her own words, uh, hearing what she went through. Yeah. And I should, um, I should read that one thing about how she yeah. never asked to be born on this horse. She's never, she's never, about, never been, so about it every day she's never wished that she was, how'd that go? I could read that if you want. I'll find that real quick here. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this was uh, 1969. It was before the surgery. She was talking to the doctor. And she said, after 43 years, I continue to live with an obsession that has ruined not only my life, but the life of others I have loved. I cannot understand myself, nor can I reason why I must be tormented until I die. I did not ask to come upon this earth, and I have never thanked God for the, for the breath of life. My health is excellent, and my appearance is normal, normal enough. A normal male that should find a place in this world, marry and live out a reasonably happy life, if only it were that simple. I am a female, and I continue to live as such, regardless of type of clothing, kind of work, etc. Society dictates that I live and work as a male, but laws cannot bend deep feelings and belongings that tear, that tear me away from the maleness they stab me with. As I write this, I am dressed as a female, my true identity. If I seem rough and coarse, blame it on society. They force me to live in a man's world, a world I've despised from the beginning. I no longer care what people think when they meet me, for I choose to stay that way I am now. When I venture out into the world again, it shall be as a female. I thought that was really a, a strong statement. It's really well said. Isn't that well said? Yeah. That was her feeling. That was before the surgery. Yeah. Well, on that yeah. note. Okay, that's a, good, that's a good way to end it, I guess, huh? Do you guys have anything else you want to say? Um, did we mention that letter to her kids? I think we might have oh. forgot that. I thought that was kind of an important piece of yeah, the story. The letter, uh, the uh, month of the hijacking. Let me read that letter too to her. Yeah, I can read that. It's in our book, but, but uh, that's kind of interesting. It it didn't. It had. It just said November nineteen seventy one. It didn't okay. have a day, because um, she had said that. She was waiting for the just the right conditions. The weather, to be, what, the weather to be quite stormy. Right. But um, anyway, it basically sounds quite like a goodbye letter. And uh, her daughter sent this to us. Uh, actually, it was a while after we got all the other stuff. And it, it was kind of compelling to, you know, I think it's a good piece of evidence that... Uh, she was planning on doing the jump. And it's signed uh, 
Barber and Robert Dayton. Okay, I will read it. Dennis and Rena, perhaps this letter will explain many things. I know you have both wondered why I remained so distant and never tried to contact you the last few years. My past life was very mixed up, an inborn problem that made a normal life impossible for me. Your mother and I separated because of it, and I am sure you must remember something, Dennis. Rena was too young then. To be brief, no matter how hard I've tried in the past, I've never been able to accept myself as a male. And nearing the brink of possible suicide, I submitted myself to extensive medical and psychological research. It was determined that I was a transsexual, transsexual physically a male, but more basically a female. The magnitude of the predominant sex could not be reduced. In December 1969, I underwent conversion surgery for sex reassignment. I am no longer a would-be man and have my true identity now, and I am much happier for it. I'm sorry for the hurt this must bring, but you both have full lives ahead of you, and I was only able to salvage a portion of mine. Don't ever worry ab about either of you being abnormal. This thing is not hereditary, and I know you both will have good lives. Think how hard it is for my parents to accept this. They do not fully understand, nor do I understand. I'm very sorry for the coldness on my part towards you both in the past, but now you understand why it was better I stay away. I could sense my destiny. I'm proud of you both, and I wish I were free to express everything I feel. Please don't hate me for what I've done. Life is full of the unexpected. And this was dated uh, November 71, the month of the hijacking, and it had uh, no specific date, like 10th or 15th or 20th. And I believe she was waiting for the weather to be stormy and miserable, so it would be hard for a plane, a chase plane to follow the uh, 727. That's an incredible letter. Isn't that? And it's, November it's, it's, 71. November 71. And I have the original letter in my safety deposit box. And it, you can read it. She said, you know, you can tell she's, you know, she, it's like a goodbye letter in case things didn't turn out the way she's telling them. She's telling them, she's letting them know she loves them both. And she's sorry for the, for the coldness on, the, on my parts towards your boat, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just a... It sounds like a goodbye letter in it case does. It she... Does. Yeah, in case she, she augured into the ground, right, or, or she got or got shot, a sniper shot, or got right. arrested right away, or arrested. Yeah, exactly. So it's. I thought that was a good piece of evidence to me. I think. Yeah. I can tell that you guys really care about Barb. Oh, we did. We were like, really. We had. We just. We really good friends, and and you know, and we. And I, like I said, I spent. I flew with her for for ten years. We flew everywhere. Everywhere we went together. And we had just always had fun everywhere we went. She was just, she was a great person to hang out with. So, yeah, it's a, I was sorry when she, you know, uh, got kind of, you know, got kind of paranoid about about the story and everything, and and then when she dis disappeared for uh, two a good two years, right? Yeah, three years, uh, three years before we located her again down in Nevada. So, but. Uh, she was a big part of our lives. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting part of our lives. Yeah, 
real interesting part. And like I say, you sometimes you never know who you're going to end up meeting at an airport. <laughs> and they always say most pilots at at the airports are they're all a little strange pilots because you got to be a little strange to jump in an airplane, anyways. Well, I really appreciate you guys talking to me about this. I had a really, really good time talking to you two. Well, thank you. And we, your daughter, Tammy. Yeah. Well, we, en- we, en- we enjoyed visiting with you, too, and, and telling our story. Thank you for listening to my interview with the Foremans on Barb Dayton. Be sure to pick up a copy of their book, The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes. There's a link to it in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or inside information in the case, you can find us on Facebook at the Cooper Vortex or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. You'll find a link to both in the show notes. Thank you to Ron, Pat, and Tammy Foreman for taking the time to participate in this podcast. Thank you to Russell Colbert for providing your mad production skills. I'm Darren Schaefer. Thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.